people ask, you know, oh, weren't you scared? I was like, no, I was outraged. You know, how can these people just do this? You know, this is what we grow learning. Like uh, we raised by our parents to help others to take each each other. It's not only when I grow to take care of my parents, I take care of the people around me, mm -hmm. my sisters, my brothers, their kids. And my neighbors. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. In California, I'm Nora Barrows Friedman with my co host Asa Wynn Stanley in London, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Hello, Asa. How are you? I am good, Nora. Um, it is hot here in London today, um, and uh, yeah, I've just been out in the garden doing some <laughs> gardening, so I'm feeling pretty good. That's good. How's uh, how's quarantine going? Um, well, you know, being lucky to have a garden um, helps cope with it. Um, I don't know. It's, some days it's like the only thing you've got forward to is going to the supermarket, right, basically. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um but it's yeah. it's nice to get out in the open air. So I've been trying to make an effort to do that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I planted some uh, tomatoes and snap peas. It's the little things during this time of crisis and chaos and upheaval. Yeah, for sure. it really helps. I find it's really soothing. Yeah. Well, good. Um, that'll come in handy for our podcast episode today. Um, we're going to be talking with Iara Lee, who's an activist and longtime filmmaker. Um, she was on, she was a passenger on the Gaza Freedom Flotilla in May 2010, exactly 10 years ago. Um, she was on the Mavi Marmara, the largest ship in the flotilla, which was raided by Israeli commandos. Um, they killed nine people, injured dozens more. A tenth victim um, died about four years later uh, of his injuries. And, um, you know, there, this has no Israeli soldier or commander or military official, government official, has ever faced any sort of investigation or prosecution um, for these crimes. So uh, we're going to be talking with Yara about looking back ten years later, um, and uh, and you know how how she's still trying to pursue justice, um, not just for her yeah. Shipmates, it was a really but, grim night. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a really terrible to watch, you know, from afar and follow. I mean, I, at the time I was uh, in London supporting um, friends, yeah. and you know, comrades who were. Uh, on the boats and you know just trying to raise awareness about it and media interest in it yeah. and um it was horrible to just get these reports from afar and not know what was happening to people um it was it right was a, i mean they terrible. like cut the satellite transmissions it was i remember trying to track people who were also on the boat and just there was no communications and we knew that they were about to be raided um but we couldn't get any information out and then after they were um, commandeered uh, to an Israeli port, um, we finally started to learn what had happened. It was it was horrific. I had friends on the boat who came back and were just really traumatized by the whole yeah. experience, really. And it it just 
you know, Israel just killed these people in cold blood and um, it was really gruesome. And it was also uh, another symptom of the racism of Israel because they, I mean, and we'll get into it in the interview with Iara, but um, it does seem they really kind of targeted the Muslim passengers, yeah. um, the, you know, the mostly the Turkish passengers. Um, and uh, it was, and I can't believe it's been 10 years as well. Yeah, it's amazing. And um, 10 years and no justice. No justice. Um, I just, you know, one one of the many stark things about what happened on May 31st, 2010 to the Mavi Marmara, the people on it, um, was the propaganda war that started right after. I mean, Israel knew that if they were going to uh, steal a ship like, uh, you know, in, in... in the middle of the night, but in broad daylight, so to speak, um, and kill, you know, a bunch of people, they were going to have to spin it in a way that was palatable. Um, yeah, they were jihadists, they were terrorist sympathizers, they were terrorists, Muslim extremists, you know, anti-Semitic, um, they were violent, you know, all this rubbish, all, all these lies. It was really, they even doctored photos and videos to, to make it seem like the Mavi Marmara passengers had knives and weapons and they doctored and they doc oh. they doctored a recording of a radio transmission from the boat That's right. to yeah. make it, uh, sound as if, um, passengers on the boat had told the Israelis to, I, well, I, I basically said anti-semitic things had told them to go right. back to the gas chambers or something like that something along right. those lines right. you know there's no legs that uh, israeli propaganda won't go to and no debts it won't sink to you know so it was yeah, uh, it was i suppose it was uh, illuminating in that respect anyway so let's get into the interview um, right after we're gonna play an excerpt of an interview uh done by aaron lakoff of independent jewish voices canada a wonderful activist organization um an interview that aaron did with Mohammed samara who's a 37 year old nurse activist teacher and tour guide living in nablus in the occupied west bank so we're going to play that interview after Yara Lee. let's go to that In the early hours of May 31st, 2010, Israeli commandos in speedboats and helicopters attacked and and commandeered a six-boat flotilla full of international human rights activists bound for Gaza, killing nine people and injuring dozens more aboard the largest vessel, the Mavi Marmara. A tenth victim died of his injuries in May 2014. The Israeli forces commandeered the boats with all their passengers and crew to the port of Ashdod, where they were held incommunicado for many days. All video and photographic footage was confiscated and media were not allowed to speak to the hundreds of kidnapped passengers. Nine of the victims were Turkish citizens. One, 18-year-old Furkan Doan, was a U.S. citizen. But despite this, the Obama administration ignored calls to investigate his execution-style killing and bring the Israeli perpetrators to justice. Ten years later, those Israeli commandos still escape prosecution. We're delighted to be joined by filmmaker Iara Lee, who was on board the Mavi Marmara and smuggled out digital footage of the raid and massacre. She screened that footage to the United Nations. Uh, Iara is the founder and director of the Cultures of Resistance Network. Iara, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. 
It's my honor. You guys are doing amazing work for so many years. I really appreciate the perseverance. Thank you. Same to you. Um, let's begin by having you tell us what you remember about that day 10 years ago um, when uh, the Gaza Freedom Fl Flotilla was hijacked. Um, paint us a picture of what you experienced. Um, you know, I was with my cameraman and uh, I was warning him that uh, something big was going to happen. And he was like, oh, you're so exaggerated and bombastic. How can they take over this boat? We have so many people, you know. And I said, you don't understand. <laughs> and I think in a way he thought he was going to an adventure with me. He didn't realize the, the dimension of the situation. And then literally they came in Zodiacs and helicopters, masks, live ammunition, and he just couldn't believe it. And then I was rushing and telling him, you see, and don't use the HD card, the big HD card, use the small SD card because they're going to confiscate everything. And when the whole commotion started, I didn't think he was going to remember because it was just so chaotic, but he actually did. He shot everything with a small SD card. And, uh, you know, it was so much panic. At some point, I was really like concerned because I saw the, the shooting and uh, uh, I was, you know, every time I travel with my crew members, my concern is always the well-being and the safety of them, you know, their safety. And uh, um, at the very end, you know, everybody was separated. I didn't even know if he was alive. And they put all the women underneath and they started bringing dead bodies and they were putting them right next to us. And I just didn't. I just couldn't believe, you know, because we were all told that maybe we'd be go, we'd be thrown in jail, rubber bullet, tear gas, but not that they would come with live ammunition and start killing point blank. So it was very chaotic. The first thing they did, they basically shut down our satellite so we could not communicate with the rest of the world. And uh, everybody was filming and they were allowing us because they knew at the end they were going to confiscate everything. And that's exactly what they did. So my cameraman and I, we had a strategy of hiding it. And since he was Serbian, blonde, blue eyes, and the Israelis were so busy with the Muslims, with the beard people, they were kind of like not paying so much attention to the Europeans ones. And uh, we managed to smuggle out the only footage that got downloaded more than half a million times because it was the very only one. The, the crazy thing is that, you know, when you go with this material to unmask the Israeli version of the story, is what it was shocking to me is to see how the media reacts because a lot of times they would say, oh, we already ran the story. And I was like, yeah, but you ran the Israeli version of the story. And this is what happened on the deadly night in the middle of international waters. And a lot yeah. of the mainstream media just didn't even, they didn't even want to hear about it. So we were, we had to do a very independent grassroots style. We had to upload on the internet so people themselves could go and access what happened on the deadly night. And that's what we did. I mean, uh, Obviously, you know, people who think like us, they gave the media coverage, but the people who are basically part of the mainstream media, they just boycotted the only footage that was the evidence of what really happened that night. 
So hmm. the struggle continues, you know, as we know, uh, Israel's war, war crimes, people just watch. I was in Lebanon in 2006 when they bombed, cluster bomb for 34 days and the world just watched on TV. And, uh, you know, the white phosphorus in Gaza was the same thing. But the, the difference about what happened with the flotilla and the Mavi Marva was because we had a lot of international people. And we were all little megaphones about what happened on that night. And I think, in a way, this is a greatest proof that international solidarity is so important because when the Israelis go and White Phosphorus, Gaza, cluster bomb, Lebanese, nobody seems to care, you know. But when you have a lot of international people involved, then it becomes an international uproar. And this is why it's so important to get more and more international people united against all these occupations around the world, not just um, Palestine, but Kashmir and West Papua and Tibet and so forth, you know. So through our cultures of resistance work, we are trying to really unite all these movements together to work in unison. And, uh, and the power of the grassroots is the numbers, you know. We need to just get more and more people involved. A lot of times people ask, you know, oh, weren't you scared? I was like, no, I was outraged. You know, how can these people just do this? You know, For not even a minute I was scared. I was just really outraged, you know. And it was the same thing in Lebanon in 2006. I was like, how can they cluster bombers like this? And, and people are just doing nothing, you know. <laughs> this is what is unbelievable, but... It's, it's the situation, you know, injustice seems to be the status quo. I mean, people get away with murder and, uh, and this is a state terrorist Israel. It's, they've been getting away with murder for many, many years. So we just have to keep persevering through legal action and grassroots activism and whatever it takes. At some point, mm -hmm. it, does, it, does has to, it has to change, you know, it, it can't go on forever. But... The policy and the, you know, the way, I mean, when you have a leader, the Israeli leader that says, well, if we go down, we'll bring the whole world down with us. What kind of intractable situation is that, you know? So, yeah. so it's a very difficult, but we are persevering. We are stubborn. We are Don Quixote. <laughs> we are like <laughs> Sisyphus. We take the rock up, knowing it's going to come down, but we'll keep pushing it up and uh, we just keep on going. You mentioned an interesting detail about uh, how you told your cameraman to use the small SD card instead of the big one. Why was that? Because then we can hide. You know, the, the bigger card is, is much larger, so it's more conspicuous, more visible. So uh, I think this is basically the only success, the, why we were successful, because we were using small SD cards. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we had everything confiscated our cameras our cassettes our media cards our telephones our credit cards you know and it was just incredible that these soldiers even had the audacity of charging and buying things not only they're like war criminals they're petty criminals too they use the passengers yeah they use the <laughs> yeah. passengers credit cards to buy personal items for themselves i mean this is incredibly outrageous you know the kind of level yeah. of criminality from petty yeah. to state terrorist crime you know um yeah i i remember it quite well I mean, it, it was 
and we were following it from London and from all around the world, minute by minute, as as the boats were going in, headed on the way to Gaza. Um, it, it was uh, it was a terrifying night, you know. We we had friends on the boats, and uh, you know, getting updates from people from afar was uh, it was a really difficult time, um, and it was. It was really worrying, you know. Um, I, how it was, it was a really quite remarkable achievement that you got the footage out of the boat and you, you managed to get it back and to uh, with all these um, tapes and SD cards and everything confiscated, like you said. Um, how did you manage to do that? How did you manage to, <laughs> to smuggle out this footage? Oh. We basically, you know, hid behind the elastic of the underwear. The cameraman did that. And then we basically, you know, got these small SD cards with the recording. And we even put the footage online, raw footage without editing. And then we made some short films. Later on, more passengers were able to retrieve their material because at that point, the Israelis were just so careless that when they sent some of the luggage back, you know, and or... Finally, when they sent the Mavi Marmor boat back, you know, some of these things that were in the, on the boat or, you know, in, in bags. So some of the passengers were able to find. And, uh, but I think the relevance of our footage is because we were able to get it out right after the assault, you know. And this was the only yeah. thing that came out to the point that I had to go even and testify at the UN. My cameraman, actually, he was so courageous, but he got so scared because then he realized that, that he was not fighting with someone. He was fighting with a very powerful government and all the personal repercussions that he can have, you know. And this is the thing that makes people so afraid of confronting because the tactics are so horrendous. They, they will persecute it in a way that they would like, you know go beyond you they will go after your family it's almost like a north korea you know when you lose the soccer game the whole family of the soccer players get thrown into some concentration camp you know this is the the, the tactic of the israeli government and uh mm. so it's it's very difficult because obviously you know i I guess I'm courageous to do this work and then all of a sudden backtracks because so scared on the personal level even a lot of my relatives were like, well, you play with fire, you'll get burned, you know, just understand that. So it, it just like you, you have to be really ready to take all the consequences because it, it goes sometimes even beyond just you, you know. My mother, when she visited, you know, she was like, oh, if they know I'm connected to you, they're not going to let me come in, you know. <laughs> so it's it's just really crazy. But uh, we, we have to persevere, you know, we, we sometimes get thrown in jail, get deported, get killed, but things will not change if we don't persevere. So we just have to keep moving forward. I always find it encouraging when I hear uh, details like you said about because your cameraman was uh, a white man, the Israelis were paying less attention to him rather than the Muslims, you know because they were perceiving them as these evil terrorist threat. So it's always encouraging to hear reports of people's own racism working against them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, with the beard people, they will go through the beard, the hair, between the teeth, everywhere, you know. 
And, mm. uh, and in fact, like uh, the Canadian passenger, Kevin, he found this little booklet on the boat that one of the soldiers dropped. And when I first saw that, I thought it was the list of people to be killed. But then when we analyzed, mm. it was actually the photographs of the VIP people on the boat. So basically the commanders and the instruction was like, kill whoever, but don't kill the Nobel laureate, the members of parliament, or, you know, these uh, VIP people. And I was wow. like, uh, wow, this was all premeditated, you know. I, I remember that booklet. I remember hearing about the booklet and seeing the photos of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I... I uh... I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because, you know, at first you think, oh, these are probably the people that they want. But in reality, it was the people that are like, don't touch those because they're high profile and it will create noise. They didn't realize that just attacking us, mere activists and humanitarian people would actually create this kind of like international scandal. So that was the most impressive thing, the fact that we could make noise just as international activists and humanitarian people. So again, I say, please, the more people we have for the movement, the more Palestinians will be able to accomplish their freedom. Alone, they can't do it, you know? And uh, so hmm. I think the, the work you guys are doing of educating people, because there is so much convolution in the way stories are told, people get confused, you know? I mean, uh, the whole version of the story was that we were a hate boat. And then when you see our footage, you say, how can you call us hate boat? We had kids, we had priests, we have, you know, mothers and elderly people, senior people. We had artists and we had all sorts of people. We were not a hate boat. We were a humanitarian boat. We all had this vow of nonviolence before entering the boat. So just to come, you know, to the Western press and says, oh, we had to kill them because they were violent activists. This is just completely like, you know, lie. And the footage we brought was able to show that. So before our discussion on May 30th, I encourage people to see the short version, the longer version, the raw footage, and you can see it for yourself. And we'll... Um... I want to ask you about that uh, this this 10th anniversary um, commemoration event, but but I want to, um, I you know that the talk about the reason why you were taking part in this flotilla. What 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 were these activists and humanitarians, Nobel laureates, um, going to Gaza or attempting to go to Gaza to do? I think we are just stubborn, you know, at some point we have to go beyond just clicking Facebook like or, you know, just feeling outraged at home. Sometimes you have to go and confront with your own body and your own mind and your own soul, you know, to, to show how outraged you are. And I think that's what motivated us and the fact that we were so many and we had all these things to deliver and we wanted to show the world that this was an illegal siege, you know. And this is just not acceptable that nothing can enter, you know, by air, by sea, by ground, you know. You, you can't do that. This is just like completely illegal. So we were mm -hmm. just trying to bring this kind of awareness and information to the world. And that's why the boats keep on going, despite the fact that they keep being attacked and people continue to be, you know, in prison and, and, and so forth. 
so I think it's it's just the perseverance and the stubbornness, you know, we we cannot stop. And all sorts of mm. manifestations that can create this kind of public awareness, I think, are important to, to be continued. And um, along with that, of course, is like the international legal obligations. Um, the International Criminal Court has ordered investigations on the massacre, you know, for the over the last 10 years at various points. But to date, no Israeli soldier or commander or, you know, um, Israeli official uh, has been investigated or prosecuted. Um, the ICC's chief prosecutor, Fatou Bansouda, had ignored key evidence and was found to have made serious errors in fact and in law in uh, her decision not to pursue the case. I, I believe this was uh, 2014 or 15. Um, you know, and of course, we have to factor in U.S. and Israeli political pressure here. Um, uh, but but Bensouda, for her part, has recently in the past month indicated that she will be pursuing investigations into Israeli war crimes in Palestine. Is there any information yet about whether the Mavi Marmara attack will be included in these investigations, if, if they indeed proceed at all? Well, that's why I decided to invite Norman Finkenstein to come and join us, because he's, he just wrote a book. He devoted his whole life to this conflict, to like uh, uh, incredible suffering, personal suffering. And he will be talking about that. The latest is indeed that the, there is this now desire of opening the case and you know restarting and i think it's a positive uh step so we'll see normal will be with us on may 30th and he will actually be one of the main speakers about the issue together with the passengers we have the shipmates um one of them lost his father in the mavi marmara the other is member of a uh, former member of the parliament in germany uh, we have a canadian we have uh, um uh, an American, we have a Spanish member, and uh, we'll be discussing all these issues, and Norma is going to give us an update on the ICC case. Um, give us a little bit more information about this event. It's on May 30th. How can people learn more uh, and and get involved? I think uh, the main thing, for at least for me, is to bring new people to the movement, you know, because... Um, People who already know and are informed, it's good that they join us, but we are cultures of resistance. We are always trying to preach to the non-converted, you know, and making people open their minds and see other versions of the story. And uh, I think uh, this is what uh, is very exciting to, you know, two weeks before the Zoom, we already have almost 700 people registered. We don't know how many of those are Zionists, <laughs> you know, but uh, we are really doing a lot of outreach campaign and grassroots outreach to get new people. And a lot of people basically don't know anything about the conflict or they're very confused. And uh, so I think this is going to be very educational. And it's, a, it's part of a series of webinars. Uh, my friend from Canada, Rifa, he, I gave him my footage and he actually was one of the people who got footage back through the luggage that Israel uh, returned to us. And he also cut a film, a, a longer film about the Mavi Marmara and the Gaza Flotilla. So he has one at webinar and then we have another. My Spanish friends will have one in Spanish language. And um, this is our ripple effect way, you know, of trying to 
get people more educated about what's really happening. Um, it's very difficult. I mean, uh, Facebook, you know, they don't put uh, the posts on news feeds, so we get like one like <laughs> when we talk yeah. about it. Or they already deleted three times my profiles entirely. So like, you know, each time 5,000 people are just gone. And I was getting so frustrated and I was like, oh man, I'm going to leave this Facebook. And my friend says, that's exactly what they want. They want you to shut up and go and leave. So I decided to become a Facebook octopus. Now I have five profiles <laughs> and I just, you know, as soon as they delete me, I start again and I put 5,000 people again and I just keep like proliferating <laughs> And uh, it's good tactic. Yeah, it's, it's the game of, you know, who has more resilience and more stamina because, you know, they will just keep shutting you down. And and as you guys have publicized many times when, uh, you know, you write articles or anything in the media, there are kids, you know, that are hired to work from the comfort of their homes to just go and and troll and, and write and disseminate all these lies in as comments for posts and articles and everything. So everything in the on the internet is filled with these soldiers for Israeli propaganda. So we, from the Palestinian side, with the occupied people, we have to be very resilient and also do the same, kind of like, you know, educate people with the version of the story from the ones who are suffering and not the ones that are causing all the suffering, you know? Tell us the the website and any other relevant links. Um, we'll also post them on the blog post that accompanies this podcast. But um, yeah, give us the website. Well, the, the Gaza, the, it, there is one that is the Freedom Flotilla Coalition. So they are the main organizers. We are the Cultures of Resistance. And uh, we have the, the, the ones for, from Canada. We have many, many different groups, the Free Gaza, U.S. Boat to Gaza. And uh, it's, it's this little web <laughs> that revolves around the flotilla. And we are all trying to you know, work together and exchange solidarity amongst ourselves, too, so we can cross-promote. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think I can give one website, but ours is culturesofresistance.org. <laughs> and is, is, that, is that where people can register for the Zoom meeting? Yeah, yeah you can just come to Cultures of Resistance or the Freedom Flotilla uh, Coalition or the U.S. Boats to Gaza. And Great. Uh, yeah, you can just, Great. yeah. I think if you just Google... <laughs> Gaza Freedom Flotilla or Mavi Marmara will also show up. Yeah. ER Lee, thank you so much for your work. We're gonna we're gonna put all of the links um, to your original footage um, that that we also published um, at the same time in, in 2010. So people can see, you know, that footage that you and your cameraman shot. Um, and we'll also put a link to your website so people can learn more and register for that event um, if they want to do that. Yara Lee, thank you so much for everything you do and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Coming 
Coming up next, we're going to go to an excerpt of an interview uh, with Mohammed Samara done by Aaron Lakoff of Independent Jewish Voices Canada uh, in April. Thank you both to IJV Canada and Mohammed for this interview. Uh, Mohammed Samara, I'm 37 years old. Uh, I am married. I have two daughters. Manal, she's three years. Zaina, she's four months old. Um, I work as a nurse in a public in a public surgical hospital in Nabis called Rafidia, Rafidia Hospital. Um, I also, I work on many things. I am social activist and uh, I volunteer in many organizations. I used to give English for kids and for uh, uh, translating and doing uh, tours in the city. And also Nablus. Um, so, yeah, like, uh, um, most of my life, like, since I moved to Nablus in 2003, I have been volunteering until then, until now. So, yeah, I'm doing these things besides mm-hmm. my work. Perfect. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> and Thank you. So, yeah, to come back to the situation in Nablus, can you give me a yeah. sense of what the atmosphere is like in the streets right now? Um, are people nervous, anxious? Uh, what would you say people around you are feeling about the coronavirus? Um, uh, okay, like people are, uh, of course, like most of the people are freaked out. Mm. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, like the essential, the most important thing is food and <laughs> groceries. So some of the shops are uh, barely can have enough stuff. They bring stuff and they it's, it's gone, like immediately people go and buy the stuff. Um, the streets are empty. There are no taxis, especially like the public transportation are cancelled at all. Like no one can reach out the walk or go somewhere. Like it's all closed. The surrounding areas around Nablus City is also blocked with the uh, Palestinian Authority uh, policemen, uh, which is <laughs> which is similar because like back in 2000. Uh, to 2005, like when I was studying nursing, uh, like uh, Nablus was surrounded with many checkpoints. So for me, it was really, it was really difficult uh, to go and come to Nablus from my town. So I moved to Nablus, and uh, you know, like the trip took only 20 minutes. Mm. But uh, because of the siege around Nablus back then, uh, it used to take three hours because I had to go through mountains, go from car to another car, go, leave a car, then walk like for 20, 30 minutes, get another car, maybe walk again, leave a car, walk again to get another car to get to my town. Mm-hmm. So uh, so for me, it was, uh, which is, I don't know which, what, what I should say. It's sad or it's good because it's for me, it's not traumatizing experience because I already had that experience. Yeah. <laughs> Like to stop and getting checked and like uh, see my ID and they ask me where where you going where you come from so that's like something it's like give me like a flashback like it's something I I had it before I don't know about the new generation like <laughs> who 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 didn't go go through this but uh, like I was in this car and like there were two guys they were complaining about that there is this line of cars, long line, and like the police are checking. And for me, I was so relaxed. So <laughs> I don't know, should I be concerned about it? Or, yeah. You know, but for me, it was, it was normal. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah, uh, the people are um, also anxious because most of them uh, in the city, most of them are, uh, you know, they're working on daily basis. Like they work this day and they get paid for this day. I don't know what's the word in English. So yeah. they just have like uh, settled uh, salary. Yeah. They are not. Yeah. In so, English, we would uh, say and, um, day laborers, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, also, like so many Palestinian works in uh, uh, the occupied part, uh, which like question like Israel, uh, they work there. So now uh, most of them are being deported, like sent back to to Palestine, to West Bank, because like he, as you see, if he did, like so many, like it's getting like really uh, spread very quickly in Israel. Mm-hmm. So they send them back to Palestine, to West Bank, mm-hmm. and uh, with the Israeli, with the, with the Palestinian who works in 48, and like the people who work in Palestine with daily payment, um, that really affects them, and they don't know what to do. Also, the public transportation, like the people who drive taxis, and they, they also like they stopped working, so people are really concerned about it. The banks are closed; they only work for uh, like emergency cases. So, so emergency uh, cases, um, so like this part of people, like they are really anxious and really, um, um, how can I say, like they are, they will freak out if they didn't already, if they already didn't. Yeah. So that's uh, the situation of most people, and I said, uh, like people who doesn't have a place to put their kids uh, when they go to work. Because they have to go to work. There are some places where they, and some ministers, like Minister of Education, uh, they say, yeah, you can uh, take two days only, or you can take, uh, two, you can work for two days and rest the rest of the week, mm-hmm. or you don't work. So, but for the health and for the security, for the health department and security department, we don't have that choice. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that really sucks. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that's interesting right now is a lot of people in different parts of the world are trying to cope with different forms of quarantine or isolation where they aren't able to leave their houses. Um, as we know, yeah. like police in a lot of places like in Italy and in Spain are actually mm. ar- arresting people if they're outside in groups. And so a lot of people in, in like the Western world, for example, are having to figure out how to meet their daily needs under these forms of restrictions of making sure they have enough food, making sure their kids are educated. And of course, you know, you guys in Palestine, as you were saying, you've already lived with these kinds of restrictions. So military curfews, right? Like I know that Nablus was under one of the longest military curfews in, uh, I think it was in 2002 or 2003 during the second intifada. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what life was like, under those kinds of Israeli military curfews and how how you managed to like make make ends meet like how you managed to get food how how families managed to cope and what that was like um okay as i remember i was you know like i'm talking about 17 to 20 years ago so i will try to remember as much as i can sure. uh, yeah it was really long curfew um um, the people, like, you know, even the medical teams were not allowed to move during the curfew. Yeah, so, um, like, you know, with 
hard situation. Uh, so many, a lot of positive energy come, come, come up. You know, so, so like people like during the uh, the curfew, people offer their houses uh, to be used as uh, hospitals, field hospitals. They wow. offer their houses. To, yeah, and uh, the medical teams and the press, they were trying all they can do. All, all their tests to get medical supplies and food and bread and uh, deliver it to to families mm-hmm. during that time. And as I lived that in the past, uh, now I see like since all this curfew and quarantine started, so many initiatives uh, start to come. Like um, like uh, for the people who doesn't have now daily income, there are uh, some initiatives like they say there are these shops who can who can put like some money in these shops and uh, say like, I leave this money like 200 chickens for one family for uh, vegetables mm-hmm. or like even grocery stores. Uh, sorry, it was like three grocery stores. Um, and in one week, it was about... Uh, like almost 11 families, uh, like, uh, where, uh, how can I say, benefits from that. Oh, interesting. Uh, like, this is not, this is uh, like, it's not me, but this is, of course, like, it's some friends or people who know, like, they raised, like, a lot of money. Like, so many people went and bought the money from these uh, stores and helped uh, the, uh, with, with this. And so many people benefit from that. Um, in some other cities, there are so, uh, also like the same. So many restaurants before they closed, they uh, made the daily meals for wow. families. Also, yeah, wow. um, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, there are uh, like uh, yesterday, I had this uh, situation that happened to me uh, where I was like in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> and the car came, and they thought I was. Uh, uh, they, they ask me what you do here because you know people take care of uh, like who come who, uh, who come to the city who go mm-hmm. um, so like, I ask me yeah I'm just like trying to reach home and uh, and I can't now and they told me okay they check my temperature of course and I told them what we do they say we are volunteering just like we just go around like see who people like who doesn't have uh, a place to go or like they are far from home so we can help them if they need anything and they drove me to the nearest point to my wow. house and th- so those were <laughs> medical volunteers that did that no 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 they were just like like people like uh, wow like, just regular they are people not medic- Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and and just so I understand correctly what you're saying, so essentially, so people are going to like stores or restaurants and leaving donations for other people, like money, so pe- other families who need money can go and and take those donations yeah, if they need. It's mostly it's mostly in groceries, but like some okay. restaurants, they did the initiative by themselves. Yeah. Uh, like they did it by themselves. That's really so, yeah, incredible. They, That's so incredible because, you know, even here, um, yeah. you know, restaurants aren't doing that. They're just like their businesses. And so I think a lot of those businesses are suffering, but they're not at they're not like necessarily making meals for like families that need it. So that just, it sounds like there's yeah. a really incredible level of solidarity amongst the Palestinian yeah. population right now to help each other out. 
this is what we grow learning. Like uh, we raised by our parents to help others to take each each other. It's not only when I grow up, take care of my parents. I take care of the people around me, mm-hmm. my sisters, my brothers, their kids, and uh, my neighbors, my people, the people are in the neighborhood. So uh, it's not only about uh, because like everybody believes here that when you do good thing, it's gonna impact any good thing to you. I don't know if there is a saying in English or something like that, but like. It has uh, it has a great impact even when you see someone is yeah um, yeah I was going to say something else like even in the villages of the countryside um, like the young people are, are not young people like they start to make like uh, small communities or committees um, to organize the the curfew and to go, it's not only to organize to tell people like hey don't leave the house it's also they help people if they need something. Like if someone like run out of, uh, let's say, uh, uh, rice or bread, they call this committee, mm-hmm. co- uh, co- uh, committee, this group, and this group brings them the bread. So they tell them, like, you can do anything you want, just stay at home. And <clears throat> after they do, like, shifts all the day. Wow. And so those committees yeah. are, are functioning right now? Like... Or those were, those were yeah. coming. Okay, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, like uh, like in my town, uh, my is one of this uh, like in this group, and my in other countryside uh, where my wife from is uh, my brother-in-law. He's doing that as well. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's going because because now like there is a strict curfew from seven p.m. until seven in the morning. Okay, and like in the seven in the morning until seven p.m. PM, only shops and uh, bakery stores are allowed, and the local pharmacies are allowed to open, not anything else. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening.